Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler, and in this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. Our next guest is Christian de la Huerta. With 30 years of experience, Christian is a sought-after spiritual teacher, personal transformation coach, and leading voice in the breathwork community. He has traveled the world offering inspiring and transformational retreats, combining psychological and spiritual teachings with lasting and life-changing effects. An award-winning, critically acclaimed author, he has spoken at numerous universities and conferences and on the TEDx stage. His new book, Awakening the Soul of Power, was described by multi-Grammy Award winner Gloria Estefan as a balm for the soul of anyone searching for truth and answers to life's difficult questions. Christian, I'm super excited to have you on this podcast. Hey, Bob. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I'm going to jump in, and if I read correctly, you are one of nine kids? Yep. Eight of us now. One of my brothers drowned a long time okay. ago, 30 years ago, okay. but yes, okay. one of nine and all within 12 years, no twins. Wow. Okay. Busy parents, but, uh, but Catholic. Catholic. So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Everybody thought we were Catholic because there were five of us and we drank. <laughs> so everybody just assumed we were Catholic, but, uh, um, where were you in the birth order? I'm second oldest, oldest male. You, oldest male. So a little bit of responsibility there, a little pressure. Yeah. It, yeah. And certainly levels levels of machismo in a Latin culture, more, you know, some more subtle than others, but I think it's there. It's always there in the background. Absolutely. And you grew up in, as a child, you grew up initially in communist Cuba, mm-hmm. and then you moved to rural Georgia, yep. and then you ended up in Miami. Yep. If you reflect back on those things, um, those places... Were you aware of any differences in terms of money, finances, either with your parents or the way that you were given money or treated? Oh my God. Talk about culture shock. <laughs> uh, let me, let me give you, and you know, we had it much better than most in Cuba because my parent, my father was a doctor and they had friends in who worked for foreign embassies. Um, and they were able to, to, Exchange to get stuff black market that many people wouldn't be able to do otherwise. But give me, let me give you this story to illustrate what it's like. And, and that's just like a simple story, not to, not to point to the, the values of the freedoms that we take for granted here in, in, in the U.S. and, and, and in the democratic countries. What's chewing gum to us here, right? We, we stick a piece of gum in our mouth and we spit it out without even thinking about it. Once in a while, through my friends and my parents who worked for foreign embassies, we used to get a pack of chiclets. I don't know if you remember the little boxes. Oh, I of, do. Of I chiclets. do. Yeah. And so, you know, we'd split up, split the, split the chiclets before, between the kids and we'd chew it all day. At the end of the day, we'd get, get a glass with like a little bit of water and the bottom, uh, put toothpaste in it and stick our gum in it and stir it up and so that it'd be minty the next day. And then of course hide it. So my mom wouldn't throw it out. And sometimes we keep it going for a week or two until she found it and, and threw it out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> See, right. And, and, and those moments were precious when you got that little chiclet. My God. Yes. And you know, it's like, I'm, re- I'm really grateful for a lot of that, of, of my growing up experience. We had a TV, but there was nothing worth watching. Right. Maybe some, some, old Spanish movies, I mean, old U.S. movies in in black and white. Um, and the rest of it was pretty much government propaganda. Uh, so we grew up reading, which, you know, for which I'm really, really grateful because I was a good student because of that and developed a really a lifelong love affair with words and, and with books because of that. We also grew up creating our own games, like inventing our pastimes. Rather than, to me, it's so sad when I see the kids, so many kids today with just their nose to the screen and um, living in this world of illusion. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were growing up in Cuba, were you aware of your privilege? Um, I mean, 
privilege as defined being in communist Cuba. Yeah, yeah, I, I could tell. I mean, I've, it wasn't like thrust in our faces, but, but you know, my my parents had help. You know, they had a, a housekeeper that that lived with us, and and there were other you know there were other kids in the neighborhoods who didn't have that. It wasn't something that was like really, really evident that was that everybody noticed, but but yeah, there were some differences, and it wasn't like we were like ultra wealthy at the, like under communism. Um, there wasn't that anymore, unless you were part of the government of, of the communist regime, because yeah. supposedly they went, you know, to get a to get rid of the the difference between rich and poor, but they just changed uh, <laughs> who owned the the power and the money. Absolutely, and when. Um, did you, um, were you aware of money at that point? Like that money or was it more about power or more about position that brought, uh, prosperity? I don't think I really thought about money until we came to the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, like, imagine nine kids and yes, my dad was a psychiatrist, but still, you know, like to, to support nine kids um and which he put all you know clothed and fed and put them all through private schools um in high school um you know there were so many so many sacrifices that were made especially by my parents like i can't even begin to imagine how many times they put the needs of one of the kids over their own and you know i for one shared a small bedroom with uh, bunk beds with my three brothers until yeah. I was 18. That's amazing. I can't even imagine putting nine kids and two adults on a plane or on anything and traveling somewhere else. I mean, you actually need your own bus. <laughs> I, it's, it's, I can't even imagine. And, and then, you know, and, and when we left, my older sister was 12, I was 10 and my mother was eight months pregnant. She actually wow. lied to the airlines and told them it was six because otherwise they wouldn't have let her fly. Uh, and then to land in Spain, because at that point already you could fly directly to the U.S. Right. And while my dad had to immediately hit the ground running and start studying in English to pass the, the foreign exam so that he could practice medicine when he landed here, my mom was then like thrust as she was about to give birth a couple of weeks after we landed into taking care of nine kids without help and without knowing where money was coming from or when, how much or when it was, you know, we got money from friends and family here in, in Miami, but we didn't know how much or, or when or how much time until the next little bit of help arrived. So I can't even imagine what it was like for them. That was definitely moving forward uh, into the unknown with, uh, with really no safety net, uh, which is a bit fearless. Uh, from my perspective, pretty courageous. What was it like when you landed in Georgia? So now here you are, you're Spanish speaking family, nine kids, and now you're in rural Georgia. Yeah. And before that, I want to, I want to highlight what you just said, because what I think it was only, not only fearless, but it points to, to, to the fact of, of, of the immigration story, right? The immigrant story, yeah. the sacrifices that people are willing to make for the sake yeah. of the possibility of freedom for their kids and, right. and the life of promise that America still represents in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, once we landed, oh my God, it was like culture shock. <laughs> um, you know, in Cuba, we grew up, you know, because my parents, they had they were, they were okay. They were probably middle class, upper middle class. They were professional class. And so they had, there was nothing to spend money on. Uh, so there were people who actually made a living by standing in line because you had to stand in line to get everything, to go to the stores, to, right. to go to the ballet. And so, you know, several times a year, we used to go to the, to go to the ballet and we used to see the Bolshoi, you know, the, the Russian ballet when they were in town once a year and the, and the Cuban national ballet, which is extraordinary, extraordinarily good. And so, you know, that's how I was raised and then suddenly land in, in Milledgeville, Georgia, um, without speaking a word of English. And my mother with the best of intentions, like pushed me onto the football field and, you know, wanting us to fit in, I was like, I didn't even understand like what the purpose was or what we were trying to do. Didn't understand the coach's instructions. Uh, so you want me to do what? <laughs> uh, you want me to like, like get 
knocked down on the on the ground? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> it's a rough so, sport. <laughs> so fortunately, I managed to break a finger or a toe or something. I forget, and and that was the the end of my football career. Ah, no NFL. <laughs> <laughs> no, not for and me. With all did, due respect, not for me. Not for you. Uh, and. Did you notice a difference in money was now short? You were relying on friends. Um, did your parents, uh, less patient, more patient? I mean, it, it, I, I just, again, I can't imagine bringing nine kids over to a new country, new language, and then move forward. That's, a, you know, that is very courageous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, of course, everything changed. Um, you went from, in, in Cuba, where everything, you know, you had a, a what is it called the quotas or quotas for everything. So you had quotas depending on how many people in the family, um, whether you know, how much milk or how much bread or how much how many eggs you could buy if the stores had them, because often the the, the shelves were bare. Um, right. To suddenly being completely overwhelmed by by the choices in the supermarket. Um, you know, just for, for choices of cereal or toothpaste or soap or anything, which is completely overwhelming to see fruit that I'd only read about, like apples. Um, but then, you know, money was a reality. And, and so, and when we, when we first landed, um, you know, probably spent a month in Miami before we moved to, to, to Milledgeville, we got, you know, we had, Cubans at that time had refugee status. So, so you basically were given like, uh, certain kinds of f- food, um, items. And, um, I'll never, I'll never forget, you know, this kind of really bad American cheese that, that came in unmarked packages or I forget what the boxes said, but it was pretty bad. But still, I mean, the level of, of gratitude and the, and the level of excitement and fear, um, about being in a world, it's, it's hard to convey that. And, you know, everything was hand-me-down and, and clothing mm-hmm. that people donated. Um, and everything in our family was hand-me-down too, because there were so many of us. And so, yeah, it was pretty much living in the beginning. It was living by the generosity of, and help of, of others. Wow. I, I was just thinking, though, as the oldest son, at least you got the clothes first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First in the family, at least. <laughs> yeah, at least first in the family. Yeah. Yeah, it was still being handed down from somebody else. Right, right. Um, And did you know, like, this is just such a random thing, but I was thinking um, in Cuba, I would imagine you had plantains. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Georgia probably doesn't have plantains. Nope. (laughs) They may now. They may now, but the basic staples of Cuban life were probably not jumping up and down in rural Georgia. No, although, you know, it's like, like, there were times, like I remember one time in particular in when I was growing up in Cuba, when it was like going through a really difficult time economically. And for like six months, every night for dinner, we had black bean puree with scrambled eggs because there was nothing else. There was nothing yeah. else you could get. So, so the, you know, the, there were a lot of challenges and a lot of difficulties of being in the States and not speaking the language in an environment in which... Um, you know, foreigners were not taken too kindly, um, yep. initially. And so there was a, that whole struggle with identity as well mm-hmm. and trying to fit in and, and how much of myself do I sacrifice in order to, to fit in? Um, and, and yet the whole thing was an incredible blessing. Like many, many people did not have that opportunity. Yeah. Or, or gave their lives, you know, trying to leave. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And as you moved into Miami, I mean, one of the things that you talk about in your book, and um, which I think probably resonates for a lot of people in different ways, because I think often we all sometimes feel like an outsider. Um, but you talk to this piece about always feeling like an outsider, mm-hmm. um, and and that, but there, you know, a silver lining in that as well, right? If we look for the silver lining, um, instead of the victim stance, we can look and say, Oh, well, here's the beauty of that. I was more self-reflective. I was yeah. more this or that. But I think a lot of people out there do often feel like they're the outsider, that they're the different one. And I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about that because, 
um, I, you know, for me, it ties to who we are spiritually, financially, emotionally, all these things. Because even when we're feeling like an outsider, or if we don't belong, or we don't feel self-worth, uh, that may be reflected in the way we save our money, or the way that we hold back, or the way that we don't allow ourselves to receive uh, financial gain, or gratitude, or pleasure, or whatever it might be. And I just that was something that stuck out as I read it. I just, I think there are so many people out there that say I'm the outsider. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think sometimes I think that I came this lifetime either to that, that was one of my main lessons or one of the things that I needed to master, like being the other, like feeling different. So in Cuba, you know, we were immediately ostracized as soon as you ask for permission to leave like you apply for a visa to leave immediately you became a traitor to the revolution and you were labeled gusano which means worm and and even like third fourth grade teachers would call you that like call a little kid that my sister and i were always at the top of our class and as soon as you know the word got out that we were intending to leave which took the process took years but we never got awards anymore. We never got even cookies at, at break um, when they had them. And then we finally are able to leave. We come to, to Georgia and now, you know, stand out like a sore thumb because I don't speak English. After three years there, you know, like mastering English to, you know, to, to in, in, in the desire to, to fit in as much as possible. Um, then we moved back to Miami and I was we went to a small, you know, Catholic Jesuit high school that was all boys. And it was like probably 99% Cuban. So now I stood out again because I had a, you know, it sounded like a Georgia peach. Um, <laughs> and then the deeper one really was that I already knew, even at a young age, I already knew that I was gay. Right. Um, and so that was really the deep, dark secret. That was really what was underlying the fact that my adolescence was one long depression. And, and, you know, you brought up spirituality. And and so try, like, imagine trying to reconcile like this part of you that wants to serve God, that wants to serve the sacred as I, as I understood it then. Um, while at the same time being told by the religion in which one was raised that I was going to that I was going to burn in hell for eternity, that that was an right. abomination in the eyes of God. It's like, oh my God, what a, what a mind, what a, a mind F bomb does that do on you, to a person? Um, yeah, especially at like what, 14 years old, 12, 13, 14. That's a heavy, yeah, that's heavy. a heavy thing to take on. Yeah. Yeah. And like you were saying, it's like the hidden blessing for me was that looking back on it, like having had to, having to face such deep existential questions, like who am I really? And, and who, who, what am I here for really? And, and, you know, it's like, I had to do that at an earlier phase that most of my, um, you know, heterosexual, um, friends, because for me, it was a matter of survival. Right. As you look back on all of that, um, and you see the silver lining, what would you say to people out there that are struggling with with finding their voice or needing to keep secrets? Like, right, we all have secrets. And, and, and for some people, the goal is to never have anybody find out their secrets. Um, and the reality is if we can be vulnerable and actually let our secrets be known, um, we can then stand fearless. But for those people that are still in fear, is what would you say to those people knowing the journey you've been on? You know, to, to trust, to, to be patient, it does get better. And in, in the end, it's worthwhile that the pain, the alienation um, that I experienced, it's, you know, it's, it's I'm grateful for that now uh, because it also gives me empathy, right? It helps me to understand, to empathize with another human being's pain, even if the details are different. It's like, I right. get pain. I get self, self-doubt. I get self-hatred. I've had suicidal fantasies, mm-hmm. you know, as a teenager. And, yeah. and so these days, and this is the hopeful message of, of my book too, is that these days, no matter what happens, no matter the details of my life, like a relationship works out or it doesn't. 
a, a project succeeds or it fails, in quotes, no matter the circumstances, I never, ever question my sense of worth. Like, like my, my level of self acceptance and even self love, self honoring, self respect is established and it's a done deal and, and it cannot be shaken. Yeah. And I, you know, you talk about your journey from self hatred to self acceptance, right? In the book. And I think like it's a hard journey. It, it's it's not something that you just go down and you go to the store and you pay five <laughs> bucks and and then ah I'm I'm in self acceptance. It ta- it takes work and I just like want to name that for people listening out there. They're like oh, I don't want to do the work. Unfortunately, or fortunately, <laughs> you got to do the work. You got to show up. Yeah, you got to do the work. You know the other alternative, which tragically a lot of people do, is numbing out. Right, yeah. running away from ourselves and and our fears and our doubts and and uh, our emotions, even um, and and you know numbing out in all the very creative ways that we do, whether it's substances or or sex or or shopping or TV or gaming or workaholism, even right. Mm-hmm. And and the thing about to realize that I think ultimately we know is that we can't run away from that stuff. Yeah, we can't sweep it under the rug, even if we're not facing it. It's, it's still impacting our, our lives and our relationships from the subconscious. And, and the tragic part of that is that we can't do anything about something that we don't see. And, yeah. and, and yes, absolutely. It's, it's work. It's hard work. It's, in fact, it's even heroic. You know, that's the title that, that's part of the title of the series of the three books, uh, that I'm, that I'm working on, of which this one is the first. Um, it's hard work, you know, to be able to look at ourselves, to ask those hard existential questions, to be able to ask ourselves why we do the things we do. What are our triggers? What kind of people get our goat? What kind of, 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 of situations, um, you know, drive us into self doubt? Uh, what are, why the patterns? What kind of patterns do we get into, whether they're behavioral or behavioral or relationships that sometimes feel like we're in the same boring movie, just with a different actor. Right. Um, but it's like, we've been here before. We've done this stuff before. Right. So it's, it's hard work. Yes. And it is infinitely rewarding and so worthwhile because in being willing to be able to, in, in being a, willing to, to do that work, we can free ourselves and, and we can introduce choice into our lives rather than reacting and overcompensating from from unhealed stuff from our past or from a lifetime of suppressing emotions. Yeah. And in your journey um, to self-acceptance and having that strong foundation, are you aware of any like financial sabotage? Did money play a role? Did you punish yourself? Did you like do anything that you can look back and say, Oh, there were some unconscious attempts here to, uh, to undo all of this. Sure. Um, and, and I, by the way, I love, you know, the, the, the fact that you focus your work on that, on, on the emotional, um, layers, um, and layers, you know, related to money. It's like, <laughs> I wish I would have had your book when I was, when I was younger. Um, yeah, I, there were definitely layers of emotional stuff. I think partly, um, you know, I don't know if, you know, if, if, if it, it was a, a result of previous past, past, uh, lifetimes of monastic, monasticism, um, mm-hmm. or whether it was just conditioned this lifetime, um, from the Catholic upbringing, which at least my, my parents' interpretation of it, um, uh, because there's right. definitely a lot of money in the Catholic church, at least institutionally. Um, absolutely. And, and so, you know, the way in my parents' version of it, um, like my parent was, my, my father was an amazing psychiatrist and he was just horrible, horrible bus- businessman. And I know because I get a lot of feedback about people, you know, even these days, oh, I used to see your dad and he really made a difference in my life. However, in terms of his own emotions, interestingly, he was clueless. And in terms of, Money, he would just didn't have any sense about that. So for me, it's, I didn't, I didn't have any role models in terms of relationship to money. And I don't know if there was any layers of guilt, which I know is one of the common, um, emotions that are associated, associated with money. Um, maybe had to do with, uh, 
you know, having been raised in a communist regime and the, and the message about it, everything should be divided equally. Um, at least in the ideal version of it, you know, for me, it was a journey of, of, of making money wrong subconsciously. I don't, I don't think I, I, I know it wasn't an, an, an intentional thing, but I think there was a, a subliminal message. And yes, Catholicism had something to do with it. You know, it's like, it's the, the eye of the needle thing. It's harder for, for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Something like that. So That's I remember right. reading That's that. Right. As a, I remember reading that as a kid. And, and so, yeah, you know, maybe any of those or a combination of all of those, but I definitely grew up with, with a make wrong, um, attitude towards money. Um, and so it's been an evolution. And then add to that, you know, once I started doing spiritual work, uh, when I turned 30, there's layers of, 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 of meaning about that, you know, like, so, so many people believe that if you're doing spiritual work, that you shouldn't charge, that it should be done for free. Right. Um, and yeah, there was a time in, in human evolution where that makes sense, where the shaman or the medicine woman were, you know, were supported um, by the village and they were taken care of and, and they didn't charge. But that's not the world in which we live. It's like, hey, <laughs> no. I gotta pay bills too. Um, <laughs> and so that was part of my journey too, you know, reconciling that um, mm-hmm. and getting to a place of freedom and feeling good about charging you know, what my, what my work is worth. Um, and then part of the, part of the journey too, Bob, it's been from this negative adversarial relationship with money to acceptance mm-hmm. to a trusting relationship, mm-hmm. right? So, so, um, I've lived long enough and and as part of my spiritual journey have been in some really difficult um experiences that I'm happy to tell, tell you about too which got me to the point of knowing it's like it's not a belief it's like I know that I'm going to be taken care of it's like I know that I've I've experienced it when I went on my spiritual journey uh, 30 years ago I had a pretty comfortable cushy job I was making good money had a sports car a condo in the water and when I went on my spiritual journey I, I gave away or sold everything basically kept my my books and my, and my Armani suits which tells you a little <laughs> bit about my my attachments um, which I never wear anymore but but anyway that's that's what it was and for and now you and I paid off all my all my debt and I brought about you know maybe Eight thousand, ten thousand dollars to the community that that I was a part of, and for the we, the the teacher, and six of us, six students flew to Hawaii, and the the intention was that oh we use my credit cards right to to pay for all those and all those uh, airfares, and, and and we basically she and I survived on those credit cards for the six months that that after by the end of three months she had disbanded the group other than me and or people had just left because they, they couldn't hack the demands of, of the spiritual life of the of the ash, ashram life and so the intention i know was that when the work took off that my credit cards would be paid you know that the work never really took off right and so pretty soon it was like it was when it was just me and her um it was like Creditors calling, credit cards getting canceled. There goes one, there goes another one, and, and realized that much of my identity was connected to that. Um, we got evicted, which I've never been evicted from anything oh, wow. before that, from one of those corporate, you know, month by month uh, furnished apartments. And and here's where where it got to the worst. Like we had storage units in Honolulu, we had storage units in LA, uh, storage units in San Francisco, and she and I for a week lived in a car. So we were basically homeless. Yeah. Um, and you know, like we would sleep in, in the car at a, at a truck stop and in the morning we'd go and take a, get $4 and take a $4 shower at the YMCA. And I can't even tell you how difficult that was because at the, at the same time, same time that it was, that she was a ruthless eagle slayer. So I had all that undivided attention on me. And we were in survival mode yeah. and, and she would, had experienced some kind of profound spiritual transformation, but she wasn't very functional in this third dimensional reality. <laughs> so I felt responsible for her and for us and for the work. Um, at the same time that I was being, you know, slain, um, <laughs> for my humanness. 
And so I can't even begin to tell you how difficult that was, but here's the invaluable lesson that I learned. Like every time, like we were like, like, that's it, right? There was nothing else to pawn because everything was in storage in a different state. Um, like I pawned, you know, a, a, a chain from, a my former girlfriend, girlfriend from high school, pawn CDs, pawn, you know, any, like there was nothing else to pawn. And then that was it. And inevitably, every single time, money would show up from an unexpected source in the last, at the last minute. And, and so after a few of those, I I began (laughs) that, that shifting of my relationship where, where I feel, I feel, I know I'm going to be taken care of. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think, so then the next step in that evolution was trusting that I'm going to have enough, um, to then letting it be okay to have more than enough. Right. Um, you know, because that for, for the majority of my life, it was just it, you know, like just enough, like barely making rent, you know, but always making it, but barely and sometimes sliding yeah. in too late. So that, so that continued that process. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting you say that about the just enough, because I think so many people live with just enough, um, because then the guilt creeps in, or the who am I to take more than than what I need to actually have a little bit of abundance, or, and 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 we can play that mind game, and so I think a lot of people do keep themselves from having more because of that mindset of like I just need enough. And, and no more. I won't, I won't take any more than just enough. Um, and I think, I think it's okay to have more than enough. And there is so much abundance. And I think in this culture, uh, we don't even actually see all the abundance that we have. We don't even, you know, just like, um, you know, going from Cuba to even rural Georgia where you've got 20, types of bread and there's eggs in in the grocery store. Um, those are things a lot of us just take for granted. Um, yes. Being able to have a shower. Um, you know, I've traveled to a lot of developing countries and they're grateful to have a bucket of water once a week that they yes. maybe get to heat over a fire. And I'm like, I didn't get to take a third shower today. Right. <laughs> so um, I, I think that redefining what is enough and abundance and all that stuff is, is, is an important part of the equation because I do think we, we don't see all that we have. And then also we, we think we don't have enough, but we're just like, Oh, I'll just get by. So yeah. it's, it's such a tricky uh, mind game that we play with ourselves. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, that's still part of my, my process. Like um, it's, it's, I'm almost not, but I'm almost ashamed to say that my journey of saving started recently. Yeah. Um, because, you know, and so, and, and yes, I still know that I'm going to be taken care of. I know that I'm going to be okay. But, you know, there's a Sufi saying that, that says, um, you know, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so I, you know, that was a, a realization I had a few years ago. It's like, all right, I trust and tie yeah. my camel in that area. No, exactly. Well, it reminds me of uh, there's a story I share in the in my book about this person who was the son of a minister, and they would always say, "Well, God will provide." And you know, I know you need a new winter jacket. God will provide. And then maybe one of the prisoners would uh, offer a coat. And his thing was, "I know God will provide, but I'd sort of like it in November." <laughs> And so I'd sort of like to have the money to be able to actually go buy my coat and not wait for somebody to provide in February and have a little bit m- more control. It's not that it's not trusting, right? But that uh, I'd sort of like to have a little more uh, proactive uh, part of my life uh, yeah, in play. Yeah. There's also that joke about, you know, I forget the name. Uh, so let's use Robert, you know, Robert, who is always uh, commiserating and struggling with with God because he didn't have enough and and you know the, the argument and how come you treat me this way why do you why can't you help me in this area and and praying and praying and praying for money and praying and praying pray for money until God probably had you know, it's like had enough right and so I say Robert help me out here buy a lotto ticket because <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's what it was about this it was about help me win the lottery that's what the prayer was for oh right help me win the lottery buy yeah, a lot yeah. of that's exactly right. Everybody wants to win the lottery, but you got to buy the ticket. You got to, <laughs> exactly. you got to, you got to pay to play, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
Well, let me, I'm going to change direction for a little bit. There's two parts of your book that I, for me, feel important to talk about. Um, that's the path of forgiveness and the path of gratitude. Um, for me, those are two key components in a lot of the work that I do. And so I just wanted to um, get your take on this, the importance or why you think this path of forgiveness and path of gratitude. For me, they're related. They may not be related for you, but I uh, those two, for me, uh, really resonate. No, I think that I think I hadn't thought about it that way before, but I think I can see instantly that they are related. Um, so, which one do you want to do first? Do you want to do forgiveness let's do, first? Let's do forgiveness first. I feel like that's always an. I think for me, being able to forgive myself or to forgive others allows me to uh, have more gratitude, allows me to have more abundance, yeah. and so for me. I, forgiveness is a key component as part of one of the first steps. Yeah, you know, I, I, I totally agree. There, there are not many things that I'm dogmatic about. In fact, only three that I can think of. And I guess I'm not really dogmatic because if I can be shown a different way, I'm happy to, to see it a different way. But as I see it now, if we want to be free, if we want to be in our power, like assuming, stepping into our power, if we want to uh, like really be who we are. Um, there's three things that I don't see a way around. One of them is going within. Um, because what we're talking about, right? If, if, if we got us know why we do the things we do. Um, and, and that is a heroic thing to be willing to look inside. And that's why the entrances to the old temples used to say, know thyself. Um, and, and even, you know, it's almost cliche to say that if you really want to love somebody else or be loved, you got to love yourself first. Um, so, so that, then the second one is, is, uh, forgiveness. And because I don't see a way around that one either, because if we're holding somebody over the fire for what they did or didn't do, our hand is also getting burnt. Right. Uh, which is just another way of saying what we've been told before that forgiveness is really for ourselves. Uh, another way that I think about that, if we, if we think of the heart center, the heart chakra, so not the organ, but the energy center, um, it closes and opens to allow, you know, it's, I think of it as like the iris of the eye or the shutter of a camera that opens or closes to allow more or less light, or in the case of the heart, more or less love in. If we shut the heart to mom who did this, daddy who didn't do that, the, the ex who, who cheated on us or left, left us of somebody else, uh, the teacher who flunked us, the, the boss who fired us, we can't shut it selectively, right? If we shut it, we shut it, period. Yeah. So it's not even about them. This is about me and my heart. This is about my heart in relationship to love, in relationship to life. So... That's the way I want to be seeing it. And, and yet it's nothing short of heroic to forgive what sometimes feels unforgivable because the things that human beings do to each other is like really are hard to understand. Um, but how do we, how do we do it then? Right. How do we forgive the unforgivable? And, and this I learned from that same teacher that I studied with. Um, it's a simple way of looking at it. It's forgive, two syllables, flip them around, give four. What we're doing when we forgive is we're giving the other person and ourselves sometimes, which is even more difficult uh, or can be, the room to be human, to, to make mistakes, to be less than perfect, to make a royal mess of things, to, to fall short of the mark. Um, and, you know, the, the ego mind that, that, you know, I spend a lot of time in the book explaining how the ego mind works and, and how it keeps us in a self-made prison so that we can free ourselves from it. Um, it's, it's very self-righteous. It, it, it went to law school and it appoints itself judge, jury, and prosecutor. It knows exactly what you did that was wrong, what the punishment should be, and delivers it. Uh, and so what we're doing when we forgive then is kind of stepping back from that self-righteousness and bringing in a question mark, right? That's all it takes. It's like saying something like, I don't know. I can't imagine ever doing that. But maybe, maybe if I had been in their shoes, maybe if I had been raised 
in their family, in their culture, in that time period. If I had been raised the way they were raised and in the way that their parents were raised and their parents before that, maybe who knows there's stuff going on in their brain biochemistry that I don't know about. Maybe there's substance abuse that I don't know about. Maybe I might have done the same thing. I don't know, but maybe that alone is enough to get us off that self-righteous stance. And it begins to like crack open our heart again and, and makes room for the possibility of forgiveness. Absolutely. And I think if that piece about the question mark for me, uh, when I'm working with people on whatever we're working on, it's about getting curious and finding things interesting instead of oh my God, I can't believe I did it. Wow, isn't that interesting? Isn't that curious? If we can all get a little curious, we can create a safe space to explore all that exists. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant way of phrasing it. Yeah. Now, gratitude. gratitude, (laughs) um, You know, yeah, gratitude, that's one of the ways in which knowing Spanish is, is beneficial. In Spanish, gracias, which is thank you, it's the same word as grace, gracia. Um, in the singular. Um, and so to me, gratitude is a state of grace. Right. Um, and you know, we, you know, one of the, one of the major understandings that I had about money along the way is that, um, that it's just energy, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have all these layers and layers and layers of meaning that we have added to what money is, but what used to be spiritual teaching that everything, everything is energy. Now we know from quantum physics that it's true. It's all energy. That means, by the way, that our bodies, our emotions, everything is energy. And, and so that kind of neutralizes it, right? Money is just energy. Absolutely. And, and of so much of our mindset and how we think and feel um, about money impacts our relationship to it. A simple exercise that I did once before I knew any of the stuff, I was in a, in a funk. And, and part of it was, it wasn't the only thing that, that I felt trapped by, but part of it was financial. Um, and so I just stepped up to the point that I just couldn't see, um, a way out. And, and the only thing that I could think of is to start making a list of everything I hated in my life. And so I just started writing down, just writing down, just writing down. I was kind of like stream of consciousness. And then naturally it evolved into just writing down everything I'd hated about my whole life up until that point. And it just kept coming out and just kept coming out. And finally, it just like it stopped. And like there was a, a natural shift in energy. And and then like there was a shift. And, and suddenly some of the very things, same things that I'd hated, I was actually grateful for. Right. Um, because of, you know, so many reasons and because of like the depth of, of experience and the, the, the possible, the compassion, uh, but even more, more, you know, not quite as profound. So I think so much of it is the way that we frame things. And if we can move into gratitude, like in my retreats, I often tell people just, you know, just if you take, take a practice of for a month, write three things every day that you're grateful for. It'll, it'll, it'll change things in your life for sure. Yeah. Because in the, in the brain, the brain's like a computer. It, you know, it can't hold, like it can't be in a state of fear and doubt. And gratitude at the same time. Right. Right. So, or, or love at the same time. So if, if we make sure and we program that brain with gratitude or love or compassion, like intentionally, uh, until it becomes second nature, then there's no room for something that isn't that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I want to, the thing I want to also name to people that are listening, that doesn't mean that we're sugarcoating the reality of life. And it doesn't mean we're doing a spiritual bypass here. It's that even in the midst of a fire, we can appreciate the light from the fire or the heat from the fire. And, and it doesn't change the facts. So I, I think sometimes people go, Oh, well, you're just, that's a positive mantra. So like that's negating all of the, the negative stuff. And it's not at all. I think, Mm -mm. um, it's just. That if we can go to that place of gratitude and, and find that place of grace, as you're saying, um, that it, it, it just takes us, for me, it takes me to a better place. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm so glad you brought that up and you, and you clarified that because absolutely, I, I don't, I'm not into spiritual bypassing. It's like yeah. part of my work. That's why my work is heroic, right? Because it, 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 it means diving into, into the depth of ourselves and facing our own demons. And in fact, I wrote a piece, um, 
which I think I can't remember if it's in the first book or in the second one. And, you know, for, for your audience who may or may not know what the word namaste is, it's, you know, it's, it's, it means the, the sacred in me, the, the yeah. God in me, the, the, the love in me, that, that which is best and highest in me sees and acknowledges and bows to that in you. You know, I, I wrote a piece called one, you can't, you, a, a piece titled, you can't namaste the shadow away. Right. So, so it's, it's definitely not running away from the shadow stuff. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's with, without denying, uh, denying it, it's how we frame it. And, and it's a fundamental shift in relationship to life. In fact, it's the third thing that I'm quasi dogmatic about, which is victimization. Right. Um, because if we want to be, in our power, um, if we want to be happy and fulfilled, um, as, as long as we're holding someone or something outside of us responsible for our state of being, we just gave our power away. Yeah. And, and yeah, there are things in life that suck. There are things that happened in our past that sucked and I wish they hadn't happened. And I'm so sorry that they happened. And one thing we know is that life is going to continue throwing curveballs our way. That we can count on. Right? Yep. Crap is going to happen. If we, if we can f- reframe that and, and realize that, you know, like we understand that there's nothing we can do about that. Yep. But no matter what happened in the past and no matter what happens going forward, we always have a choice about how we show up in response to that. Yeah. And that simple reframe changes everything and it pops us out of that victim mentality and mindset. Uh, and so, for example, you, you know, just recent example, for, like for, for so many people last year, because of the pandemic, my income went to zero. Yeah. Like nothing. You know, I had to cancel retreats and workshops that I've been doing for 30 years. That was my only sole source of income. And um, I'm happy to report, by the way, that 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 it was if if it was a test for myself to see if I was really established in trust in that area, I never once went into fear about that. Yeah. And the opportunity that it gave me one, you know, without minimizing the tragic parts of the pandemic, which are many, but the way that that I framed it is like it gave me the opportunity to be home. Like like I went from a hundred thousand miles a year on an airplane to zero. Right. And so I was able to finish this book that I had been working on and brewing for 10 years. Um, but because I was in and out, in and out, in and out, I wasn't able to drop into that creative flow of it. So this kind of gave me that opportunity. Yeah. And the other thing that, that COVID gifted me with, and of course I said yes, and I showed up in response was I'd known for years I needed to develop online virtual programming. If I was going to, um, reach, you know, people who may never come to one of my retreats. Yeah. Well, guess what? COVID forced my hand. Like now I'd have a, a virtual year long coaching program. That's awesome. So yeah, even COVID had some silver lining if, if we took advantage of it and, and took opportunity. Um, I have one, I know, I know we're getting towards the end and we're going to move into our fast five in a little bit, but I have one more question that relates to what we were just talking about. There was something, um, that you wrote in your book. And for me, it, it really resonates. Um, and you're probably going, what is he talking about? Um, for me, the work that we're each individually doing and the work that we're doing just as humanity, as, as a species, I sometimes get caught up in like, we're not doing it fast enough. We got to like, it, it's, it's got to happen. And I can, I can even almost let myself spin out into like, Oh, we got to get there. We got to hurry up and get there and not trust, um, that it's, that it's all happening as it should. Um, but the, the piece that the story that I'm talking about is the story that you talk about with Jan Phillips, where she was in this car accident, right? And everybody's saying, we have to go get help. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is we are the help. Yeah. Like there's no one coming. We have to do the work. And for me, that's really powerful. And I just wanted you to speak to that a little bit because it's it's something for me that resonates personally. Yeah, yeah Bob, I, I get that. Because I, 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 I'm challenged in that area as well. To, to allow things to unfold in their own uh, timing rather than in the pace that I would prefer. And even with the development of this book, like, you know, there were several times in the last few years where I had to do like conscious 
mind training because there was there were part of me that was come am i missing the opportunities there were window that this book should be coming out that i've kind of missed it then come to find out you know like even though in my limited perception it was late to the game is like what a time like to come out last year in the middle of a pandemic with all the <laughs> the, the the like what the relationship to power was so up for everybody to look like, you know, given the, 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 the recent, um, you know, election cycles and, and the multiple abuses of power, um, of, of, you know, that, that we all experienced, um, in the last four years and, and, you know, the, 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 the you know, the neck on the knee kind of, you know, I mean, knee on the neck kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and all the, the racial systemic racism stuff, um, uh, which is about power and fear of <laughs> loss of power. Um, yeah. and, and so, like, wow, I couldn't have foreseen any of that. Um, and so the Jan, yeah, Jan is a friend and fellow author. And the story goes, she was driving by herself through, through Death Valley and her car stalled in the middle of the night. There was nobody around. And, and, and you know, um, you know, being in California that if you like, there's nobody in Death Valley at night. Uh, and, um, so there she was. So she gets into the, under the car to see what was going on. And, and somehow something happens and suddenly she's pinned by the car and she can't move. And it's like, wow, like, what is she going to do there in the middle of the night, in the middle of the desert? And then she sees this two little headlights are coming around the corner and they pause and it's a bunch of teenage boys. And she can see, you know, look, turn over and see their tennis shoes. And they're saying, Oh my God, Oh my God, we got to get help. And she just yells out to them, you are the help. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's the message of the book, right? It's like, it's all hands on deck. Um, if, if anybody, you know, watching this or listening to this has any suspicion, any inkling, um, that they have work to do in terms of, um, uh, stepping into the role of teacher or healer or in some way supporting the, the, the evolution of humanity or the spiritual awakening, whatever you want to call it. Um, this is it. This is, this is the time that we've been waiting for it. And, and I think of, you know, I paraphrase Einstein, um, who said something to the effect of that you can't solve a problem from the same level of consciousness in which it was created. Right. So when, when I look at the situation that we all find ourselves in, right? It's like the crisis upon crisis upon crisis. We're just now beginning to witness whatever it is that we have unleashed on the environment. So sometimes I think it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do about any of this? What am I going to do about terrorism or the environmental crisis or the increasing polarization in the world? Um, and so sometimes I think, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go to the beach and, um, eat a lot of dark chocolate and have a lot of sex. <laughs> and then, and then I reel myself back. Okay, dude, chill. What can I do? Right, what can I do? And, and always I land on, all right, what can I do? Is like I continue to wake myself up, to heal myself and to help as many others to do the same. Right. And hopefully, enough of us, you know, maybe there is something to that hundredth monkey effect, even though I know that original creation story of that was not real, but I'm still banking on critical mass that yeah. hopefully at some point enough of us get it. And then, uh, there's a huge shift that happens. So, so that's the, the urgency of our times that I feel. Um, and one step at a time, like, like, uh, Arch, uh, Bishop, Tutus, that's what Tutu said. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? So one step in front of the other. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm a big believer in the hundredth monkey, even though I know that it's not true uh, <laughs> in terms of the story. But it's, uh, but I, I do believe in critical mass. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Um, we are gonna. I could talk for another. 20 hours because I also wanted to touch on leadership and a whole bunch of stuff. So I might have to just drag you back here and uh, force you to have another conversation with me. But I love that, um, Bob. It's been fascinating. I got to tell you, you've asked me stuff. I've done dozens of these interviews and you've asked me stuff that nobody else has. So uh, I, I appreciate that. No, well, cool. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's what you're doing is awesome. And so I'm going to jump into the fast five so we can just, uh, we'll shift the energy a little bit and, um, We'll just sort of go with this. Uh, what was the last purchase you made um, that you had to talk yourself into? Probably the AirPods. AirPods okay. Pro. 
And do you celebrate when you reach a major financial milestone? Like when you started saving recently, did you, do you celebrate? I do. It may not be the healthiest of ways, but it, I, you know, take myself out to a nice dinner or, or, you know, one of my favorite restaurants or something like that. And do you, uh, would you rather spend money on experiences or things? Experiences for sure. What was, what is one thing you would do differently in regards to your finances this year? Probably start saving more. Okay. And, and you know, that I need to stabilize a little bit more because my income is nowhere near what it was last year. But, but if I could do one thing, that would be it. And if you were given $5,000 that you could not spend on yourself, what would you do with it? At this point, I would probably invest it. And, and that's the cutting edge for me. I don't know how to do that or what to invest that amount in, but I would get the help uh, to do that. Awesome. All right. Now we're at our sweet spot, our M&M moment, money and motivation. <laughs> what is a, um, do you have a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom, something that you've learned along the way? You know, I know you talk about trusting and things like that, but is there something that uh, you've found financially that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, I don't have like practical advice in that sense, but I think those two things that I mentioned, um, you know, the realization that money is energy so that we, as we do that and to be willing and to do the work of unpacking the beliefs that we have around money, that's invaluable. Uh, so that we can pr- approach it in a clean way. And then um, to, if I could convey the, the level of trust that I have that when we're um, coming from our authentic self and when we're um, at least striving to step into our purpose, um, like we will be taken care of. Like I have no doubt about that for any of us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Christian, I, I mean, this has just been such a great conversation. Um, I love what you're doing with the book. I love what you're doing out there in the world. Uh, you know, I think for me, the biggest takeaways are to, uh, recognize that we're all heroes and, uh, and sort of the mission or the series of the, of the books is calling all heroes. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, it's for our listeners out there to find the heroes within and do the work. Uh, trust, uh, find the gratitude, find forgiveness, and be willing to be curious, be willing to, um, be open with that question mark. Um, and I, and I think recognizing that we are, we are the help, like that there's, there's, there's not a second, uh, platoon coming. I mean, we, we're, we're in the trenches. We got to be doing this work. I really encourage people out there to, uh, if they feel a calling is, do the work. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. Um, sometimes painful and, uh, and well worth it. The payoff is worth it. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Thank you for encapsulating our conversation so uh, succinctly um, and in such a, an inspirational way. And thank you for having me on the show. It's like I've really <laughs> enjoyed um, and loved our connection and, and the, the depth of the conversation. And yeah, um, Love to stay in touch and, and do it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, where can people find your book? And I'm going to hold it up. There's the book, even though it's in behind you. Where can people find this book? Uh, where can people find out about you? You know, the book is available on Amazon, wherever books are sold at your local bookstore. Um, in terms of reaching me, probably the best way is my website, which is soulfulpower.com, soulfulpower.com. And for your audience, if they will sign up to, if they go to the website and sign up to be on my email list. And we all know how easy it is to unsubscribe. You just click unsubscribe if it doesn't work for you yeah. uh, eventually. But just by signing up, they'll get a sample chapter of the book uh, and one focus on what we kind of started to talk about what it means to live a heroic life in the 21st century. Um, and it, and also look at some power practices that are designed to apply some of the teachings in the book to our lives so that it, it doesn't stay at the level of information. We don't need more information. We've got information overload. What we need is transformation. And that's what those, yeah. te- those practices are designed to do. And then they'll also get a, um, a short teaching recorded and a guided meditation about trust. Um, so I think they'll, they'll find it of support given what we, what came up in this conversation. That is awesome. And we'll put all that in the notes and everything as well to make sure we get people to check you out. Um, so I so appreciate it. 
I want to say to our audience, please don't forget to share the love. Like, follow, and share on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Money You Should Ask, all one word. Follow this podcast on your favorite podcast player or visit Spotify and search for Money You Should Ask. Or click on the link in the description. If you're watching this episode on YouTube, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. For more tips, tools, or to learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. Uh, Christian, thank you so much. I so really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciate all that you shared. Thank you. Thank you. 